This episode is brought to you by the 12th Man. More than standing at football games, the 12th Man is a spirit of Aggieland. That rich thread of positivity, the energy that defines Texas A&M like nothing else does. The original 12th Man, E. King Gill, came down out of the stands and suited up, ready to play in his team's time of need. Today's 12th Man honors his memory by standing ready to serve at all times. That constant vigilance, the state of readiness to help our fellow person, that's what makes us Aggies. Howdy, welcome to May's Mastercast. I'm Shannon Deere, the Assistant Dean for Graduate Programs, and I'm losing my voice, but we're going to make this work. And I am with... (laughs) Aw, thanks, Ben. (laughs) I'm with our kind host, Ben Wiggins, today, and we have our guest today is Laura Lee Hughes. I think her greatest impact on the world is that she's spent her career helping entrepreneurs develop new ideas that will change the world. And she says that in the episode so beautifully that that really is her goal. Inside of Maze, she works for the McFerrin Center for Entrepreneurship, which is a center focused on helping faculty current students and former students from all across campus, not just business majors, develop out ideas and make them commercially viable. I feel like everything at this university is named McFerrin. It is. I mean, Artie McFerrin was a good guy that gave a lot of money to the university. And yeah. so a lot of things are named after him. I met him when the indoor practice facility was being built. And mm-hmm. I didn't know he was like an international celebrity. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> but. Pretty amazing. It's, it's a privilege to have people like that connected with the university that will give back their time, talent and money. No question. Let's get into it. Our guest today is the Assistant Director for New Ventures at the McFerrin Center for Entrepreneurship. Prior to that, she was the Executive Director for the Office of Technology Translation at the Texas A&M Division of Research and at the University's Health Science Center. Laura Lee Hughes, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. It's good to have you here. So let's get right into it. Having looked at your bio, it seems like you've already done enough things to fill three careers. If you had to sum up all your career pursuits in 25 words or less, how would you describe your career evolution? So my career evolution really started with me wanting to pursue an interest in science and technology. But after starting my undergraduate studies and being in a lab and doing research, I actually realized I was more interested in the intersection of science and technology with business. Hmm. So my career has ultimately followed that passion of looking at how we can take really cutting edge research, innovative technologies and move them forward into the real world so that they have an impact. And um, I've had a a really great opportunity to pursue those interests and get some great experience here at Texas A&M. Okay. So originally you double majored in biochemistry and genetics. You got a master's in biotechnology and a graduate certificate in business, as Mm -hmm. you described. What pushed you in the educational directions you originally chose, aside from an allergy to free time? (laughs) So I actually selected my undergraduate studies based on uh, an interest in science. I had a really awesome chemistry teacher in high school that got me excited about the subject. And so when I started looking at what I wanted to do as part of uh, college, I ultimately, I I originally applied to Texas A&M as a chemistry major, but then Mm -hmm. 
I got connected with the College of Ag and Life Sciences and got to talking to a few professors and researchers there in the biochemistry department. And they said, well, if you're really interested in chemistry, why not biochemistry? And at the time, I knew nothing about it. But after talking to them, I really enjoyed the application of chemistry to biological processes and the way that that impacts the way that we live and the really the future that that science was leading towards drug development and, and new technology. Mm-hmm. So I changed my major before I even came to College Station. So that's what got me in biochemistry and genetics. And then, as I mentioned a minute ago, I started as an undergraduate researcher in the biochemistry department. I did uh, research projects for about two years Mm -hmm. and realized that I was not enjoying that experience. I had originally thought I would go on a traditional path of getting a master's, doing a PhD program, and ultimately going into research in some form. But after um, doing undergraduate research for two years, realized that that just really wasn't fulfilling for me. And so halfway through my undergraduate studies, I actually got an opportunity to work in the Office of Technology Commercialization. That was my first taste of the application of science with business and regulatory and and legal. And so ultimately, that is what drove me to pursue my master's program, which is a hybrid program between business and engineering and and science. Mm -hmm. And so following that passion of really enjoying science, but wanting to be out of the lab and being more in a facilitative role of taking new technology forward. Okay. So why weren't you enjoying the lab process, the research (laughs) process, whatever you were doing before? What, what pushed you away from that? I found it very monotonous. I'm also a people person. I like to interact with others and I found that to be a very individualized, independent role, but also uh, a lot of the research projects I was working on were very early stage. And so I was constantly repeating the same experiments over, getting the same results. And at the time, not understanding why I was an undergraduate, hadn't really taken any organic chemistry, things like that, Mm -hmm. but I was doing very complex research projects. And so I just got frustrated with it and I really was looking for for new opportunities and looking to do something different. Mm -hmm. And so it was by chance that I had an opportunity to go work at the Office of Technology Commercialization. And that's where I really got to see an opportunity and a career path that I really didn't know existed prior to that in being able to pursue that passion and that interest in science, but look at it in a different way and have a different role in, in moving science and technology forward. Okay, so then what was that like? Just tell us a little bit about what your work was. It was probably more fulfilling. You said you were having issues because you're a people person and you wanted to do more people person stuff. Sure. So in the the role that I had at the Office of Technology Commercialization, I worked for our business development and commercialization services group. And so what I really helped them do was evaluate new technologies that were being developed at Texas Mm A&M. So I did a technical assessment to really understand what the invention was, what the technology was based on, and then looked at opportunities in the marketplace for that. So really mapping what we were developing here to a need in the marketplace, looking at competition, looking at other research that was out there to see if there was an opportunity for us to translate or commercialize that research in a way that it would, again, turn into a product or a service and otherwise make an impact on the world. And so in that role, I got to do a lot of primary market research looking, again, online. But I also got to do a lot of other research where I was calling people. I was getting to talk to other researchers. I was getting to talk to representatives of companies and really trying to understand what their needs were 
what research directions they were going in to really, again, try to understand what the future was for the technologies that were being developed here. Mm-hmm. And then I was able to develop those into recommendations and support the overall strategy for what we did with those technologies here at Texas A&M. Okay. So I'm a little confused. I have in the notes your work with the Office of Strategic Initiatives. There, there were a lot of like, <laughs> there were a lot of Office of and then two more words. Sure. So... The Office of Strategic Initiatives, the Office of Technology Translation, Division of Research, Health Science Center. I'm trying to get the chronology of this all (laughs) correct in my head. So what was the order? So just to kind of walk through how it all evolved, right. I, I started uh, working for the Office of Strategic Initiatives at the AM system when I was in graduate school. Okay. And I transitioned into a full-time role with them once I graduated. I see. And then I worked in that office for a number of years on projects related to biodefense and building biomanufacturing infrastructure here at Texas A&M. Mm-hmm. And that ultimately led to my boss at the time taking a leadership role at the Texas A&M Health Science Center. And so I took a lot of the work that I had been doing at the A&M system and transferred over to the to the A&M Health Science Center and continued to work on a lot of those federal and state funded projects, but then ultimately took on another role as well, uh, where I was beginning to move back more into the commercialization world, supporting faculty and staff that were developing new technology here at the university. Okay. So tell us about biodefense. So that was, again, an area that I really knew nothing about before I started my job at Texas A&M. I knew nothing about it before we started this podcast episode. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you what I know about biodefense. And so what I came to learn was that, you know, we hear about things like pandemic influenza and we hear about anthrax and we hear about all of these biological and chemical threats that we face as a nation. But what I didn't realize is there's a a significant strategy behind how we prepare and we respond to those things. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the way that we respond and try to prevent those things from impacting us is by developing medical countermeasures. What I learned is that there's a lot of challenges in actually being able to develop and manufacture those countermeasures. And so the projects that we worked on really focused on how do we develop flexible, nimble, manufacturing infrastructure so that we can make th- these countermeasures in the in a large enough quantity so that they we can protect the nation's population but also so that we can respond to what we don't know is out there. So I actually started working in this office about the time that the 2009 H1N1 pandemic hit hit the world, really. Right. And so we were very involved in developing alternative strategies for how we manufacture influenza vaccines, again, at the scale that's needed to, to try to stay ahead of that pandemic, but then also do it in a quick enough time frame. Does, does this sort of thing like involve a lot of people like injecting themselves in the heart with stuff like Nicolas Cage does in The Rock? <laughs> this is like for our younger listeners, this came out before you were born, so don't worry about it. But uh, <laughs> let's talk in terms of like what happened right after 9-11. People are getting mailed like stuff that mm-hmm. has like anthrax on it or whatever. Mm-hmm. What do you I mean, I don't know if you guys ever discussed that particular thing, but if you have an anthrax outbreak, mm-hmm. say. What do we do to what do we do to combat that? Do we like release like some kind of thing into the air or how do we deal with it? So typically there's a strategy for vaccination and or treatment. Okay. And so there's 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 different countermeasures that are in development for both approaches. So typically it would be a when you when you identify an outbreak or people that are being infected, they try to to localize that, and then they would have a strategy for how they treat people in the surrounding areas to try to contain that epidemic. When you say contain, are we talking about like quarantines or anything like that? Did it ever get that dramatic? 
Uh, no, not in any of the things that I worked on. Okay. Uh, we worked more on the vaccine side. A, a couple on the treat. We had a couple of projects that focused more on like post-exposure treatment, uh-huh. but we were more on the preventative side. So how okay. do we try to prevent the spread of these different diseases and these different bioterror agents that we might be exposed to? So you're telling me the vaccines did not have to be given directly in the heart? No, oh, no, no. Okay. Well, <laughs> there's different approaches, but none that I saw to the heart. <laughs> right. Okay. So then you were the executive director for the Office of Technology Translation at the Division of Research and at the Health Science Center. Again, that sounds like it could be two jobs. How does that all, how did that all blend together for you? So the executive director at the A&M Health Science Center position uh, ultimately led to me moving to the division of research. Um, In 2016, we were one of several functions that were housed within the A&M Health Science Center that were moved to Texas A&M as part of the merger of those two entities. Mm -hmm. And so what that really meant was that that my staff, the team that I worked with, in the role that we had at the AM Health Science Center was picked up and moved administratively and physically to Texas AM. But we continued to support the AM Health Science Center faculty and staff mm-hmm. that were developing new technology. And we also expanded our role to support more faculty working at Texas AM, primarily in colleges such as the College of Science, College of Architecture, and Liberal Arts. So that brings us to the McFerrin Center for Entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. First, tell our listeners a little bit about what that is. So if you don't know the McFerrin Center, you should get to know us. Uh, We are a center that's housed within uh, Mays Business School within the management department. Mm -hmm. And we offer over 30 different programs year round that support student, faculty and former student entrepreneurs. And so we do everything from ideas competitions, business plan competitions, but a lot of experiential opportunities for the individuals I mentioned to get exposed to entrepreneurship and when they're ready and if they have an idea, help them pursue those opportunities all while they're here at Texas A&M. What's your favorite part of your job? Ooh, that's a good question. I think the favorite part of my job working with McFerrin Center, and by the way, this is my first job working with students. So a lot of my former roles have really focused on working with research administration with faculty and staff. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I've enjoyed getting to work with a lot of our students and hearing the innovative ideas that they have. One of the things that I I didn't mention about the McFerrin Center is that we work with students from all over campus. And so we see students from pretty much every college on campus. Mm. And so you can imagine the variety of ideas that we see from students that are interested in starting their own businesses or developing new technology to change the world. And so on any given day, I have a new student that's either emailing me or coming to my office with a new idea uh, that they want to pursue. And so it's, it's really interesting just to see the creativity that they have, the energy that they have for wanting to change the world. So you spend a lot of time with entrepreneurs. What makes successful entrepreneurs different from everyone else, aside from getting some lucky breaks? I mean, you do need some luck, right? I would say a little bit of luck, but really a lot of it boils down to hard work. And the things that I see that set successful entrepreneurs apart from others are, it kind of goes back to what I said a second ago about their energy and their passion. Okay. The individuals that come, that I see out at Startup Aguiland and in programs at the McFerrin Center, there's just something different about the their energy level and their interest in changing the world. They're passionate about something that could be um, changing human health, it could be animal health, it could be... Uh, changing the lives of an everyday person like you and me. But they're passionate about something and they're really motivated to go 
make something happen. And so, and a lot of them have their own ideas, uh, but a lot of them are there because they just want to make an impact and they are trying to find the right opportunity and the right solution to be able to make that impact. So do you think then it's not as much about having a vision, it's more about feeling like the world needs changing and then allowing the vision to find you? I would agree with that. So one of the things that entrepreneurs a lot of times can be one of the pitfalls of entrepreneurship is being too married to your own idea and thinking oh. that you have the best product or the best solution. But what we're see, what we see is that a lot of the entrepreneurs that are successful are actually more open to opportunity. They're looking to solve a problem. They're looking for a way in which they can make an impact, but they may not necessarily have an idea of what that looks like yet. So going into entrepreneurship, looking at more of the way the opportunities that are out there, the way in which you might be able to have an impact and, and then figuring out a solution, uh, we actually see that those individuals tend to do a lot better and be more successful. So how do you then strike the balance between doing the thing that is you and doing the thing that the world needs? For example, one of the things that the world needs most, if, if you were to say, what's the classic answer to a problem that entrepreneurship or, or research could solve? Curing cancer. That would be something that I could I could not do well. I don't have the I don't have the medical knowledge. I don't have the patience for dealing with that particular problem would be something where I would be very limited. So in allowing the vision to find you, it seems like the great challenge then is to strike the balance between here's a problem that really needs solving and here's a problem that I can solve well and that I will enjoy solving. So how do you think about all of those questions in concert together? So I think one of the most important things about being an entrepreneur is finding something that you're passionate about. Right. Um, to, entrepreneurship is, is hard work. And so you might find an opportunity, but if it's not something that you're passionate about or you're interested in, it's going to be a really tough road for you. Mm -hmm. So I think first and foremost, finding an area that you're interested in, finding something that's meaningful to you, and then looking at those opportunities for you to change the world or make an impact. Um, that's I would place more priority on finding something that's enjoyable and meaningful to you. Mm -hmm. um, and then trying to look for where can you make a difference? What opportunities are there for me to look at developing a new technology or bringing a new product to market that would, uh, again, make an impact on whoever that customer might be? Right. So let's talk about what entrepreneurs need to do a little bit better as they're they feel like they've found their idea, perhaps, but they're in the market research stage of things. What, what do you feel is something important that entrepreneurs neglect at their own peril? Understanding their customer. Okay. It's actually been statistically shown that the number one reason that businesses fail is from lack of customers. So a lot of what we teach our student entrepreneurs and uh, many of the faculty entrepreneurs that we work with as well is, okay, you have an idea, uh, you might have a technology that you're looking to develop, but who is the customer for that? Who is willing to pay for that product or that service that you're looking to develop? And what we encourage them to do is actually get out of the building and talk to those people. 
because you might have an idea of who you think would pay for this solution or this product that you're looking to develop, but you won't actually know until you go out and talk to some of those people and really understand this is the way that they do things now. This is the challenge that they face in accomplishing whatever task or job that they are trying to accomplish that your product or service might improve. And so that process of getting out and and really talking to people firsthand and understanding not only do they haven't you don't we actually don't want them giving you feedback on would you buy my product or my service you need to understand where their problems and their challenges are and so we give our entrepreneurs a framework for going through that process of customer discovery and really discovering where the needs are and then coming back and assessing after they've collected enough data from their customers whether or not their product or their service can meet the needs of that customer. That what you're describing almost sounds like a consultative sales process. We, when I was working with Insphere and in Health Markets, we went to basically sales school, and they talked with us about uncovering the need exactly as you exactly as you described. And we would ask what question, and then another what question, and then finally a why question. And the whole point of it was to uncover at the root of someone's desire to, in this case, purchase insurance. Uh, what is it that's really important to you as you do that? Because I'm going to briefly go off on a tangent about this. So people think that they get insurance so they can go to the doctor. And it's a misunderstanding that's sort of been propagated by group health insurance. Originally, insurance was just something that you had in like basically in case something happens. And so you can protect your own finances or your your family's finances if you have to deal with a medical issue. And with group health insurance, there were a lot of bells and whistles that were kind of added onto this that people used far more often than the real root purpose of their insurance. And so they got, they started to get confused and even to misunderstand what the structure of insurance is supposed to be. So some of the process was educating them about this is actually what this is really for. And then talking with them about, okay, why, so why do you think we're here? And also why is that important to you? Because sometimes there's something that you don't understand, like coming in as the salesperson, you have to, you have to assume that you don't know what's going on and then figure out what really is going on. But it seems as though from what you're describing, it sounds like And by the way, the other reason that you don't ask people, would you buy this product is because they will, with the best of intentions, they will lie to you. Exactly. And so there's like, you can't get, you can't get an honest answer to that question. And so I guess what you're really, what you're really trying to get to is the underlying motivations that drive attention, interest, decision, action. Yes. Is that, is that right? Yes. We, we uh, refer to that as a value proposition yeah. of what value are you providing to that potential customer that, again, motivates them to part with their money to pay you for a product or a service. Right. And so we help them with making some initial assumptions about what they think that value proposition is. Right. But then we go through this iterative process of going out and talking to customers. And based on what they're telling you, if those don't match up, then you change your hypothesis and you got in retest that again and ask more questions and really try to get at that, as you said, that underlying motivation for why they need to solve this problem or how they need to get this job done. And again, 
why they would choose to buy your product or service versus another. Well, and it sounds like the elegance of a system like this is it's kind of this beautiful dance between you suggesting to them, is this the value proposition? And they say, well, it's kind of like that, but it's actually more like this. And then you kind of drift together, ideally. Yes. Yes. Ideally, you get that feedback, you gather that data from your customers, and they'll tell you exactly what value you need to provide Mm -hmm. uh, in a new product or a new solution. So they're basically informing your product development for you. Hmm. Interesting. You and I talked a little bit earlier about mentorship, and you said that what, what it sounded like you were saying was that people spend too much time hanging out with their peers, and they should spend more time hanging out with people who are farther along than they are. Does it then follow that the, the ideal system is where everyone spends a fair bit of time hanging out with folks who are more advanced than they are? and some time hanging out with folks who are less advanced than they are. You kind of build like this informal apprenticeship system. Is that like, would would that be the ideal way to cultivate a culture of entrepreneurship? I think so. Again, the, the, the younger generation of entrepreneurs that are just getting started have a lot to learn from those that have gone before them mm-hmm. and that have been successful in doing it. And I think what you realize is a lot of times when entrepreneurs are successful and they've made it, they actually want to give back to the to the future generation of entrepreneurs that are following in their footsteps. Because entrepreneurship is hard. It's it's a lot of work. It's uh, There's a lot of challenges along the way. And by the time you've made it, you typically want to go back. What we see anyways is you. Th- those individuals typically want to go back and, and help those that are, again, following in their footsteps and trying to face they're facing the same challenges that they are in trying to launch their own businesses. Do you think that there's an adverse selection process at work there? Because the early stages of entrepreneurship, when you're starting a company, it seems like it's sort of this inherently... There, there are parts of it that are just an inherently lone, lonely process. Um, it is, as you said, it's all about energy and passion, but it's driven in basically in one direction for many, many hours at a time over a long period of time. It, the, the type of person that is drawn to doing something like that, would that type of person be selecting away from someone who takes that broad world perspective and says, okay, can I reach over there to get some help with this? Do you understand? Does that make sense what I'm asking? I think so. What I've seen with particularly some of our our faculty entrepreneurs that I've worked with in former roles and even some of our students is there's usually a hesitation uh, in the beginning to reach out to others and ask for help. One of the big concerns that you hear about is intellectual property protection. And if I go talk to anybody else about this, they're going to steal my idea and they're going to they're going to take it. They're going to run with it and they're going to beat me to market. But then over time and through the process that we use, we actually help them again, understand that you can go out and ask for help. You can develop connections with other entrepreneurs without giving away your intellectual property. You can talk to them about an idea and that doesn't necessarily constitute intellectual property and um, it, it doesn't pose a threat to you getting the feedback and developing the connections that you need to move forward with your business idea. 
it's this is a familiar theme from entertainment. Everybody wants to keep their script to themselves because they're afraid that if they send it to an executive, their idea is going to get stolen. And that that never actually. Well, so when it does happen, it happens so infrequently that when it does happen, it becomes like a famous story. The Matrix happened that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a lawsuit about it. I can say this on the air because there was a lawsuit about it. And this woman won her lawsuit that basically her idea had been stolen. The other thing is, mo- for, so first of all, nobody's trying to steal your idea. And second, it's all in the execution anyway. Like Agreed. there are so few times that the idea itself is so good that it's just the idea that matters. And, you know, even in entertainment, like there are so few things that can be kind of not that well executed and still work. Hunger Games was one where the idea is just so good that you don't have to write it that well and it can still work. But in in business, I'm, I'm trying to think of an example from business where the idea is just so elegant that it actually doesn't even really matter how you execute it. But that's like 0.1% of the time or less. Because they're typically unicorns. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. Even in the case of unicorns, like it, it seems that when you say stage one of seeing something like that is saying, oh yeah, that's a good idea. And then stage two is saying, oh, and it's so well done too. And, and here's all, here are all the things that I wouldn't have thought I needed in something like that. And, and yet here they are right here in my ear. It's interesting. Cause uh, that's one of the, the things that I've come to learn more working with student entrepreneurs, uh, having come from the biotech, biopharma world, I dealt with a lot of um, faculty that were developing cures for cancer and mm-hmm. working on different ways to, to combat human health issues. And then, uh, so fast forward to my, my time here at McFerrin, and I work with a lot of students that grew up in the era of Facebook and the digital world. And so a, a lot of the ideas that we see are students that want to develop new apps for uh, either your mobile phone or websites, basically. So a lot of them are very protective of those ideas for a new app. But again, uh, what they don't realize is the idea itself, really, there's not a lot of value there until you execute on it. But even developing a mobile app, which is not something that I'm an expert in or know much about, is complicated. There's a lot of work that goes into developing the software, but again, also your marketing strategy, how you reach those end users, how to get them onboarded onto your app, how to keep them coming back. And so that's where we really, even something is what seems to be as simple as an app uh, really requires a lot of work. And we work, we use this process of helping them understand uh, their customer before they actually go out and try to execute on that idea. There, there's often so much more of an emphasis on doing something first rather than being able to do it better and thinking about speed rather than comparative advantage. Mm-hmm. We talk a lot about that. I have a small esports business and we talk a lot about where is actually our comparative advantage? What can we do better than anyone else can and why? And <laughs> I have to, we have a, we had a, a, a lot of younger people on our staff and I often have to guide them away from that's a great, it happened this weekend. Some uh, guys from Europe brought us a new idea and it's a great idea. Somebody is going to make a lot of money doing it, but it's not going to be us. And the reason, and maybe it will be everyone on my staff except me. And the reason is because I don't know how to do what they're talking about. And I don't really have a whole lot of interest in learning. Um, I don't have a whole lot of interest in learning how to write comedy either. I would have been a much better writer if I had learned how to write comedy, but I just don't, that's not my thing. I'm not, I don't, I don't care about that. So student entrepreneurs, what are, you mentioned that today's student entrepreneurs have grown up in the era of Facebook 
sadly have not grown up in the era of MySpace. Uh, but uh, <laughs> they don't know what they're missing. <laughs> profiles that play music, among other things, but Instagram, that sort of thing. What do today's student entrepreneurs do better than entrepreneurs who are, say, my age? I'm 37. Entrepreneurs who are in their late 20s, early 30s, 40s. What do today's students do better? I think what I see in my experience so far, um, and again, it's somewhat limited, is that most of our student entrepreneurs are on the cutting edge of technology. Mm -hmm. And many of them seem to be focusing on, I don't want to say social issues, but looking at ways to improve social interactions and helping to connect more with society. And so, again, we see a lot of mobile applications because I think, again, with what they've seen in the the era that they've grown up in, they've seen many people be successful in launching kind of socially based businesses. And um, so you've got Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, some of the ones that you mentioned. And so they're looking at how can they become the next Facebook or how can they become the next platform that engages a huge number of people in a social way. And again, they're they're on the forefront of technology, so they're looking at innovative ways to do that, different ways in which they can engage their users, what uh, different experience can they give them on a new platform. So that, that's generally what I see uh, in terms of our student entrepreneurs. But we also have many that are, again, focused on medical devices and improving animal health and other high-tech applications uh, across different engineering disciplines. So I won't say that they're all focused on those things, but that is a, a trend that I've seen amongst the students that I've worked with so far. Okay. So <laughs> I have thoughts on this. Let's talk about this social connectedness thing. So it seems frequently we, we talk about what one of the one of the things out there among the intelligentsia talking about social applications is the idea that we are more connected and less in tune with each other. And this, the idea of sitting in a room with another person, having an actual conversation with them, that there's that there's something that you and I share sitting here right now that we would not if we were doing it on a screen mm-hmm. on you know Skype or whatever. And first of all, are we in a better place or a worse place? And, and to a degree, this is an existential question. It one, it's one that doesn't necessarily have an answer, but are we in a better place or a worse place than we were in 2003 before Facebook came along? And then do we feel like we are colder now than we were then? And are we trying to warm ourselves up by setting ourselves on fire with all of these additional social apps that are supposed to bring us together and in the end are only bringing us right right next to each other on either side of a screen. Like, is this really the right way to solve this problem? Mm -hmm. What do you think? So I was in college when Facebook launched. So I'm of the generation that um, sees value in Facebook, Uh but also at the same time believe that we're missing a lot of opportunity to have that meaningful in-person connection. Okay. So I've seen actually over the last several years that my use of Facebook and I can't say that I use Instagram very well and I have a Twitter account, but I don't ever post anything. So I have those platforms and I use them very little. And so I and what I see in younger generations, whether it's family or some of the students that we work with or just others uh, that you encounter 
in the community is that they they do they rely very heavily on those platforms and they tend to consume uh, a significant portion of their life and so i think there's value in being able to develop that connectedness online but at the same time i think it's a, a dangerous it could be a, a dangerous and slippery slope to minimizing the interaction that we have in person and we're losing something that, some of that um, meaningful in-person connection with others that we live and work with yeah and for better or worse we are training our attention spans to be shorter and shorter yes. and i don't make an assumption about what the answer to that question is i e whether it is whether it is actually better or worse, Mm -hmm. Um, but it is where we are going. Yes. I wouldn't say it's better or worse, but um, just my personal experience is I see that there's a, 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 there's a role for it and there's a time and a place to use it. But I see that so many of the younger generation, they rely very heavily on those platforms as a way, as a way to connect with others. And just to kind of go back to something that you said, um, trends in entrepreneurship. And you actually phrased what I was thinking a little bit better in terms of this connectedness. So Mm -hmm. we see a lot of students that are coming in and wanting to develop new apps that uh, develop social connectedness. But we also see a lot of students that are coming in with ideas to follow Uber and and uh, a lot of like Uber Eats and DoorDash. And, and so the overall theme of connectedness is actually probably something that I would say more generally represents the trend that we see with our student entrepreneurs mm-hmm. is they, again, have grown up with technology. They've grown up in the the evolution of some of these technologies and these services, and they're looking for a new way for them to bring those approaches or those technologies to other areas of their life to improve that connectedness and have more of that on-demand access to a variety of things, whether it's food, transportation, connecting with others in a social setting, finding access to deals online. It really ranges in terms of application, but I like the way that you phrase that in terms of connectedness because that's really what I think a lot of them are after. Thanks. And so technology has helped us in many ways connect more in a personal way, I mm-hmm. not on either side of a screen, uh, in the sense of Uber Eats or DoorDash, I, any one of the thousand apps that do that sort of thing now, in that if I'm hanging out with my wife and we want uh, something that is not pizza del- or Chinese food delivered to the house, then we can get it. Someone will bring it to us uh, for a fee. And so we get to spend more time hanging out instead of one of us having to go pick up the food. I mean, we could go pick it up together, but it's more of an interaction. Sitting in the car talking is is certainly a way to interact but it's better if we can actually look at each other and you know and watch each other's expressions and mm-hmm. and see body language and so forth i can't see her body language when she's sitting in the other car seat sometimes to my dismay um but uh any other thoughts on where we're going in terms of in terms of connectedness because i think that's a good theme to kind of tie this all together I think what I've seen with some of our student entrepreneurs, and I've actually talked to, to several very recently that are seeing the downfall of some of the existing platforms like Facebook. They're seeing the issues that they're having with privacy and, and data breaches. They're also seeing that a lot of those uh, platforms are 
become highly politicized and they're turning to have more of a negative impact on people's lives. Mm. And so they're they're thinking of ways in which they can come in as um, basically the next generation social app that addresses some of the shortcomings and the, the pitfalls that we've seen with some of these existing technologies. And they've got different approaches that they're thinking about taking, but really, again, trying to to overcome some of the negativity in some of the issues that we've seen with those platforms consuming so much of everyone's daily life and or, again, having a negative impact on um, the way that they they view politics or that they in, engage uh, with others. One de facto social app that I'm fascinated by is Reddit. Um, because Reddit was not developed as a social app or a social site, but it has kind of become one where you hang out with other people who are interested in X, Y, or Z. But what I think people don't realize is that there are often some commonalities in the way that someone who goes on NBA Reddit, for example, I don't spend a lot of time there. I've stopped by there a couple of times, but there are some commonalities in the politics among people who hang out there and the way that someone who is really interested in thinking about the NBA on a deep level, the way that that person sees the world, there are other, they don't realize that there are other things they have in common. One of the, one of the Reddit communities that I did spend a fair bit of time on was Overwatch University. I play this game called Overwatch and it's a, it's an educational community for built around this game. And I did realize that there was a type and that I was that type. And so what something like Reddit has done, I think that it is to a degree an evolutionary form of Facebook where instead of you having to associate with people that you met in real life, you get to associate with people who see the world in one way or another the same way that you do. Mm -hmm. Now, that that is a form of social specialization. That's what Reddit is doing. And that's a good thing because it brings people together who already have things in common, but it's also a problem because it's very easy to end up in an echo chamber. So I don't even know what to do about that, but that is also where we're going. At least that's the way I see it. Mm -hmm. Um, Have you been on Reddit much? Not much. So I don't have a lot of experience with it. I definitely encourage you to spend some time there. Like just, and, and whatever you're interested in, if you just Google, like, let's say you like, I don't know, rocket launchers. (laughs) If you just Google Reddit rocket launchers, I I bet there is a Reddit community for rocket launchers. If you like Pomeranians, I I don't know, whatever it is that you're into, (laughs) um, there's a, there's a, there's probably a Reddit community for it. And if you look on there, you will see some people who are thinking about some stuff in some of the same ways that you are. And that's fascinating. I'll have to go check it out. And scary. (laughs) So last question. What is your best piece of advice? Maybe something a little bit counterintuitive because you've been a lot of different places and done a lot of different things for someone embarking on a career. Mm -hmm. How would you think about that? And what would you suggest that people do? You talked about things that entrepreneurs could do differently, but just for anyone getting ready to start their career, what would you have people do a little bit differently? 
So I would say one thing is don't be afraid to take a risk and try something new. I look back at the career path that I've taken and and how I ultimately ended up on this path. And I had no idea that the industry and the types of roles that I've had working in science and technology existed. And so if I hadn't been open to looking for new ways in which I could use my interests and my the skill sets that I developed uh, in my undergraduate studies in a different way, I probably would have tried to go down a path that ultimately I, I wouldn't have enjoyed. And so be open to new opportunities, be willing to try something, even if you don't think you're going to like it. uh, That's really valuable for you as well, is to figure out that maybe this isn't a good fit for me, but you've at least you've tried it firsthand and you know, maybe this isn't something that I want to do. And it might lead you to something else that uh, really could be a good opportunity for you and something that is a a better fit. What do you consider your most valuable failure? I have to say, um, probably my most valuable failure has been uh, not being successful in my undergraduate research pursuits. Up until then, hadn't really experienced a lot of failure. School had always been pretty easy for me. I had been uh, successful at most things that I had tried. And when I wasn't doing well in that role and I wasn't enjoying it, and that was hard for me. I felt like this is something I should be able to do. But I think it was a combination of things. It was it not being a good fit for me in in terms of my my personal interests, but also the the PI that I worked for uh, was 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 challenging, <laughs> and so it was hard for me to admit that I wasn't doing well in that role. I, this wasn't something that I was going to end up pursuing as a career path, and so. But then again, it put me on a path that has been very rewarding for me in terms of my career, and I'm that's ten years later, and so. At the time, it was really hard to understand why this was happening and why I, I, I wasn't doing better um, as an undergraduate researcher. But again, it, it turned out for the better. And I'm very happy with uh, the path that I've taken since then. Beautiful. What do you think is people's biggest misconception of you? Oh, I think one of the biggest things that I faced in my career is people thinking that I'm still very young and that because I have spent my entire career at Texas A&M, that I have had limited experience or limited opportunities. And that's actually not the case. I have had a wealth of opportunities to travel internationally. I've been to the White House. I've worked with leading officials in the federal government and and had some really great opportunities all while working here at Texas A&M. And so I think a lot of people that don't know my background or don't really know much about what I've done in the roles here, um, they think, oh, You've just stayed at Texas A&M since you were you're you're another person that's just kind of stayed here and worked at Texas A&M after graduating. But I think really understanding the projects that we've that we're working on here, there's a lot going on that that people don't realize that you can have meaningful and a valuable career while you're here. Yeah, I think as a business person, you don't know anything about someone until you hear them talk and you see them write. And once you've seen them do those two things you understand so much more about them. In our esports business, uh, we have a guy who um, I think <laughs> sells himself a little short uh, because his background is not super extensive and he is brilliant. 
and I don't think he even knows it. Um, and maybe, maybe I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't tell him that maybe he's going to leave. Um, but, uh, I think there's a way of thinking about things. There's an understanding. And I think really what it comes down to is an understanding of the way economics work and the way people make decisions. And if you can think about the world in that way, then you can be successful in business. And it really, at some level, it matters some, but it doesn't really matter where you grew up, where you went to school, where you've been working since you were in school. If you can have a conversation with someone about the way that people think about what they want in life and how they're going to spend their money and what they are willing to do to protect the things they care about, then you, you can get there. If you could have any, you talked about mentorship earlier. If you could have anyone as a mentor for one day, who would it be? And the proviso for this question is you can choose a religious figure, but if you are religious, then it can't be a figure from your own religion. Okay. That's also a tough question um, because, you know, I had been on a career path for a while in the biotech biopharma industry, uh, having based in academia, but really focus on on biotech and biopharma. Mm -hmm. And so I think if I and I'm still very interested in that as a career path. So I think if I had an opportunity to, to choose a, a mentor for a day, mm -hmm. I'd want to talk to a female that's in a tech role with a major company to talk about the evolution of their career and just see what challenges they face, what decisions they've had to make and, and get some guidance from them on and how do you pursue a career in industry as particularly in the tech industry. Uh, so someone like uh, I forget her last name, but she's the president of SpaceX. So someone in a leading corporation like that, that's mm -hmm. a female that's worked their way up from an early role in, in industry to now being one of the leading figures in a company. Or I, there's, you know, now being in the role that I'm in with McFerrin, thinking about entrepreneurship outside of biotech and biopharma is also something that I've thought more about. Okay. So it'd be interesting to talk to, and again, I don't have a specific person, it would be interesting to talk to uh, someone that's been a successful female entrepreneur and just talk to them about what made you change career paths. Uh, what made you ultimately decide to leave a career and become an entrepreneur? And how did you juggle that decision uh, to to completely change the direction that you were taking your life? And and how do you what led you to that decision? And then again, what challenges have you faced? How have you you dealt with any particular challenges of being a female entrepreneur, a, a wife, a mom, all of those things that you have to juggle as a female? I definitely understand why you would want to look for a female mentor. I think women in business are still finding three, three dimensionality, I guess, and being like being mm -hmm. considered as three dimensional people and understanding. I think the business world is only sort of just now coming to understand women as, for example, potential villains, Elizabeth Holmes, mm -hmm. um, until I remember reading that story. The first, the first time I heard about Theranos or however you pronounce that company and thinking, I don't know if I've ever seen this before. And the idea of there are so many dimensions in business that I think we haven't even considered the fact that women have not filled this space previously. And thankfully we're, so we're solving some of those problems, but I definitely understand why you would, why you would want that. Uh, what is your fondest memory of TAMU? Mm. I have so many. 
And I, I've come to realize this too, having been fortunate enough to, to stay at Texas A&M and be able to, to work with faculty, staff, students, is um, in general, it's the traditions. And so I came to Texas A&M because I grew up uh, in a family of Aggies that it's something about the culture and the traditions here it really led me to want to be a part of that. And so it, whether it's, you know, football weekends or silver taps or just different memories I have of being engaged in the rich culture and the traditions here is something that I am now reminded of when I'm back on campus working with students and getting to still be a part of those things. Um, so it's hard to pinpoint just one, but I think it's it's that culture that we have and the traditions that run deep in the university uh, are what make me proud to be an Aggie and proud to still be here uh, as part of this campus. Sure. We end each session with Good Bull. This is an opportunity to recognize someone else for something good or great they have done. Do you have someone you would like to send some Good Bull? You know, I'd like to, and it's not just an individual, but I'd like to to give a quick shout out to all of our student entrepreneurs that are going to be competing tomorrow in the McFerrin Center's Aggie Pitch event. Uh, I've had the privilege of working with quite a few of the teams that are finalists for the pitch event. And I'm very impressed with, again, their passion, their energy, the dedication that those teams, particularly the ones that I know, um, have put forth in pursuing their idea. Some of them are working on innovative medical devices. Others are working on devices or other technologies to improve animal health. And we have others that are, again, are developing more consumer-based products or services that are going to change the way you and I live. But it again, it's incredible to see the passion, the energy uh, that these students have for entrepreneurship. And so the fact that they've been selected to compete in that competition already shows that they're some of the best talent that we have here at Texas A&M. And so congratulations to them on making it to the finals and look forward to seeing them all compete tomorrow. That is great. I would like to send some good bull to Ben and Judah Murtis. They're a couple of good family friends. Thanks for uh, thanks for being my friends, guys. Laura Lee Hughes, thanks for taking the time to join us today. Uh, we appreciated having you. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. We hope you enjoyed the episode with Laura Lee Hughes. She is becoming one of my favorite people. I've gotten to interact with her quite a bit recently and just keep trying to find opportunities to interact with her. I told one of our mutual friends the other day that we should all just quit our jobs at A&M and just start a business. We don't have an idea. It's not that. It's just that I love being around those great people. And I think she's one of those people that I just want to be around more. Mm -hmm. And I, her ideas will become great things. Well, it sounds like what you're suggesting will work. I mean, yeah. if, uh, you know, a combination of figure out what you like and then let the vision find you. And then Jim Collins, you yeah. know, get the right people on the bus, right. the wrong people off the bus, right people in the right seats. And then you can't lose. Right. It doesn't even really matter what the idea is, right? <laughs> we'll just be really good at doing it. So right. it'd be fun. Right. Do a bunch of market research. For our Mastercast top three takeaways, I want to start with what Laura Lee talked about with a counterintuitive entrepreneurship idea, or at least counterintuitive around here. A lot of times people are developing a technology and then they're trying to figure out what problem it might solve. And she really encouraged entrepreneurs to flip that, find something that you're passionate about. Don't necessarily know the solution, but figure out what the problem is. And then someone like the McFerrin Center can come in and help you develop the solution. 
you know what you can supply and it's a question of finding the demand that will then meet your supply. And a lot of people, I think, think in terms of, no, this is the one thing that I can do better than Mm -hmm. anyone else, instead of thinking among the 10 things that I can do as well as or better than anyone else, where will that find a home in helping people? We heard from a guest, Scott Moskrip, who actually wasn't even passionate about the industry that he ended up solving a problem in, but he focused on the problem. He found the problem and then was able to develop a solution. And the thing he's been good at was not necessarily the solution. It was listening to customers and figuring out what they needed and then figuring out how to make that happen, whether that was him that made that happen or other people around him that made that happen. And I think that's inspiring to me because I'm probably not going to ever develop a technology. That's not my lane, but I could find a problem, find other people who could develop that technology and give them the infrastructure and space to do that. And that's an interesting, different way of thinking about entrepreneurship. Speaking of Scott and the customer piece of it, another thing that Laura Lee talked about was just how important it is to go through that customer discovery process and really learn more about what your customers need and want and then fulfill that need Mm -hmm. and want and not do the thing that you just think is really cool. Mm -hmm. So our third takeaway, we both found the discussion about IP protection really interesting. So Laura Lee really communicated how the need to protect intellectual property stunts a lot of entrepreneurs' growth and their ability to get good mentors early that are going to help them through the process. And we both found that interesting. Right. And the idea of it is not that people are more honest than you think. The idea of it is that, unfortunately, your idea itself doesn't inherently have any economic value on its own. It's the execution of the idea that's really valuable. There's a reason you can't patent an idea, much to the dismay of some of my relatives. But uh, you can find so much around you in terms of people who will help you execute that idea better. And they're not interested in stealing it for many of the reasons that we've already talked about. Because it's so much of finding success in business or anywhere else is figuring out where your fit is in the sea of demand. And someone else that you talk with this about, they'll have perspective on your idea and they can look at it as a, as a consumer to at least some degree and say, oh, that is, that's something that I would pay for, but they don't want to steal your idea. Nobody wants to steal your idea. Unlikely they don't want to work hard enough to execute on your idea anyway. I mean, because it is your idea. It's your passion. Also, I think through that customer discovery process from our second takeaway, your idea is going to change. If, If you're a good entrepreneur, your idea is going to change and evolve so much over time as you're talking to those potential customers that it's not going to be that same original idea that you're starting with. Right. And... You know, even in the entertainment world, we talked about the example of the Matrix mm-hmm. and that woman who sent the script over and then they, end, they mm-hmm. did end up taking it. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't an idea. She didn't send right. them like a scrap of paper with the idea for the Matrix written on it. She sent so them a script. script. Yeah. Don't and send someone your your uh, prototype. Have that yeah. I, have that protected. Yeah, have them, have a have patent on that. Sign an NDA and a non-compete if you need to. But uh, And then the idea. Yeah. So, uh, we talked about how it's so rare to find an idea that doesn't 
that that could be successful even if it's badly executed. I mean, Hunger Games is one we talked about, and then Inception was an idea that would have worked even if it wasn't really well executed, but it was really well executed. Yeah, I don't know. It would have been really confusing. It was already confusing. <laughs> that, it would have been true. really confusing that's if true. it wasn't well executed. Yeah, Inception's one of my favorite movies. That's funny. But that's I think cool. that's so high concept. That's one that you just throw out in the room of executives and everybody like starts writing checks. Mm -hmm. I was trying to think of, are there products out there that were such good ideas that even if they were poorly executed, they would have been successful. And I can't think of any. So people would say Facebook and they'd be wrong yeah. because there was a lot of there. Yeah. Like there were a bunch of sites like Friendster and yeah. sites like, not that they were badly executed, but it was just Facebook found there a was better way of a lot of secret it. sauce. And if you watch yeah. the, the movie, uh, what was the social network? Yeah. Social network. The, the, that movie hits a lot of the points that Facebook was able to kind of grab onto and yeah. like pull itself up to the next level. This is what pulling yourself up to the next level looks it, like <laughs> for all of our, our listeners that can see you right now. <laughs> right. I, I also think even Facebook has continued to pivot and change and, had they stuck with their original idea, they wouldn't be so successful. So again, it's that it's not the original idea. It's the execution and the evolution of that idea. You know, what's amusing to me is every time the format of Facebook changes, everybody always complains about it. And then when it changes again, they always complain about that. Yeah. It's oh, just, yeah. yeah it's and then just you get used to new. it. You know, couldn't yeah. even tell you what the you previous anymore. format was. And everybody would agree that Facebook is way better now than it was in 2006. Um, it's so much better. I have no idea. Couldn't tell you what it was like in 2006. Okay. I mean, I just don't remember, right? Because it's whatever it is. Yeah. Today. The interface was just really clunky and it's, still it's way like better it. now, aside Sorry, from all Facebook. the privacy stuff. Sorry, Mark. I know you're going to be personally offended, yeah. but it's not my jam. He's too busy swimming through his money bin right now. It's true. He does not care anymore. <laughs> ben, will you end us in a quote? So this quote is a little bit darker than I remembered it being, but I think it's important Yay. to consider. Right? <laughs> That's what we need more of is darkness. But I think it is important to consider things like this, especially as we have our discussion about connectedness. So this is Blaise Pascal. Diversion is the only thing that consoles us in our wretchedness, and yet diversion is itself the greatest of our miseries, for it is diversion above all that keeps us from seriously taking stock of ourselves, and so leads us imperceptibly to perdition. Take stock of yourselves, folks. Thanks and giggle. Thank you to our production team, producer Kyle Ackerman, executive producer Shannon Deer, and the hosts of the Mindless Millennials podcast and pre-launch executive producer Bailey Mullins. Give the Mindless Millennials podcast a listen. You'll find the Mindless Millennials show on Apple Podcast, Spotify, mindlessmillennials.com, or wherever you find your podcast content.